Welcome to tape number seven of the series What We Catholics Believe. This one is about Jesus' life and teaching. Now that's a very big subject, but we're going to discuss only some aspects of it. First of all, I think it's worthwhile pointing out to anyone you are instructing that there is no doubt that Jesus lived. We have more evidence for his life on earth than for many other historical figures, and not just from his followers. Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions him. There are a handful of statements from pagan historians, including Tacitus, the greatest of all Roman historians, who hated the Christians, but who noted in his annals, obviously on Roman authority, that Pontius Pilate put Jesus of Nazareth to death. So he definitely lived and died by crucifixion. We even know roughly when Jesus lived, as St. Luke dates his birth for us in the reign of Herod, the king of Judea, and when there was a decree from the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, who ruled the Holy Land, that the whole world should be enrolled. The whole of the then known world was under Roman domination, and he probably wanted this register compiled for taxation purposes. This decree necessitated Mary and Joseph travelling to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. So fulfilling the prophecy in Micaeus 5.2. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth the captain who will rule my people Israel. After starting life in Bethlehem, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt to escape Herod's massacre of the innocents. And there the early years of his life were spent. Until when he was about four years old, St. Joseph learnt from an angel that Herod had died and the Holy Family returned to Nazareth, their real home still, like the rest of the Holy Land, under Roman occupation. This is why Jesus is later described as a Nazarene. We know little about his life in Nazareth, except the episode when he was lost and found in the temple at about twelve. And then we are told that afterwards he went home to Nazareth with his mother and Sir Joseph, and was subject to them. It seems certain that he grew up as any other boy of that time, with his divinity only known to his close family. The Gospels don't mention it, but we know from historical records that when Jesus was still a boy, a false messiah, Judas of Gamala, also a Galilean, was crucified by the Roman governor, and so were 2,000 of his followers, at Sephoria, a town a few miles from Nazareth. It's interesting that this Judas of Gamala, a young man who also claimed to be a Messiah and who was also crucified, has made no impact on the world at all. 
Whereas Jesus, of course, has changed the course of history. He was God. He did work miracles, including bringing himself back to life after three days. And of course his teaching is so dynamic. Jesus' references to his own death later showed he knew how he was going to die. So this incident must have been particularly poignant. Some of his apostles, who also grew up near him, would have known of it too. But Jesus helped St. Joseph, his foster father, with his work as a carpenter, and when St. Joseph died, took his place as the village carpenter until the age of 30. His life on earth was a brief 33 years. And he only spent three short years of it teaching. So it seems strange that he should spend so long working anonymously as an ordinary carpenter in a small village. Was he perhaps setting an example to us who spend most of our lives similarly working? And by this hidden life, sanctifying our daily round, Obviously, at that time, he was accepted by his neighbours as Mary and Joseph's son. They would have employed him, discussed prices with him, socialised with him, prayed with him at the synagogue, all without ever suspecting that he was so much more than just a man. I think their attitude is shown by the wedding feast at Cana. Our Lady and Jesus were both invited. But Our Lady, who was older and, I imagine, very highly respected in the village, was seated at the top table with the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom. Jesus, who was younger and not considered anyone particularly special, was seated at the end of one of the other tables with the other young people from the villages. So when they ran out of wine and Our Lady wanted Jesus to help them she had to get up from where she was sitting and walk down to where he was sitting and tell him the problem now it was just this easy normality which made it so hard for the people of Nazareth to accept him as Messiah later you remember when he spoke in the synagogue and made it clear that he was claiming to be the Messiah, they rejected him. And no apostle came from the neighbourhood of um, Nazareth. St. Nathaniel, who is also called Bartholomew, is the closest, and he grew up in Cana. At the age of 30, Jesus left home to begin his public life. Again, this is dated for us by St. Luke, as in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Now starts Jesus' three years of public life which he began by spending 40 days in the desert fasting and praying. And then he travelled throughout the Holy Land he never went beyond it 
In this time, he so endeared himself to his followers that they were happy to risk and even to die painful deaths for him later. At the same time, angering the establishment so much that they even united with their enemies to ensure that Jesus himself died a terrible death. And during these three years, he revealed the truths of the church, which are now taught by the church. But he never wrote anything down. That the only time we're ever told he did any writing was the occasion when the woman in the adultery, taken in adultery, was brought before him and he was asked to say what sentence she should receive. Now he knew that Moses had declared a woman taken in adultery should be stoned to death. And so he said to the accusers, Well, I suggest that the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he said no more. But he bent down from where he was sitting and started writing with a stick in the sand at his feet. We're not told what he wrote. I sometimes wonder if he started listing some of the sins that they knew in their hearts they were guilty of. But anyway, the accusers began to disappear, starting with the oldest. They just slipped away, until no one was left except the poor frightened woman. And Jesus looked up at her and said, Is no one left to accuse you? I won't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. And then he erased what he had written. So he didn't write anything down. How did he teach? Well, he always taught by example. Anything we find Jesus doing in the Gospels, we can try and copy with great value. He taught a great deal by parables. And they're probably what we remember best, because stories are easy to remember, which is why our Lord used them. But it wasn't always by parables. Sometimes he taught directly. He taught quite openly, for anyone to listen, by the lake, or on a hillside, or in the temple. And of course he taught explicitly to his apostles. They were with him all the time. When everyone else had gone home in the evening, they could ask him, What did you mean by that, Lord? Why did you say that? And he would explain. And that was important. Because he was training the apostles to continue his teaching after he had ascended into heaven. Very often, we're described that it's described in the Gospels that he taught all day, and we're not told anything that he taught. There are many things he must have taught that are not written down in the Gospels. In fact, St. John actually says that at the end of his Gospel, which was the last one to be written. There are many things that are not in this book. They're just too many to be contained. That's why we have a church to give us the full teaching, everything he commanded. Now this teaching is, is extremely important. It's essential. It wouldn't be so necessary 
if we were just purely natural beings. We could work things out for ourselves then. But we're not. We have a supernatural destiny. And that is very difficult to determine for ourselves. That's why there's so much confusion among people who haven't listened to Jesus' teaching and accepted it. They feel instinctively there is a God, there is a great power. But they have all sorts of ideas in the pagan world about it. There's polytheism, for instance, the idea that there are lots of different gods. There's dualism, the idea that there are two great powers, one for good, one for evil, which is not true, of course. Superstitions of all kind, and even human sacrifice. All kinds of errors. Even the philosopher Aristotle, who got a great deal right, said it would be ridiculous to talk of loving Zeus. He couldn't imagine a relationship with God, a loving relationship with God, which is what Jesus told us about. So we need his revelation. It does mean, however, that if we listen to that, we follow that, we're marching to a different beat from the rest of the world. But Catholics always have been. Right at the very beginning, St. Paul wrote to his converts, Be not conformed to this world, but reformed in the newness of your mind. He meant the new teaching I've given you. That's what forms you. Not the world's values and ideas. That's something we need to keep remembering, especially now. Probably harder nowadays than it ever has been. The world is all invading. And it must be resisted. Why can we trust his teaching? Well, for one thing, he always taught with authority. Absolute authority. The rabbis of that time used to teach from the scriptures. They used to tell the people what Moses said, what God had inspired various prophets to say, quote it to them. But Jesus said, it was said to you of old, that means by God to one of the prophets, but I say to you, and he teaches something different. He gave himself that much authority. He also spoke of himself as the Son of Man. Rather a mysterious term. But it's one that's used of the Messiah by the prophet Daniel. Jesus obviously likes it. He uses it 80 times in the Gospels. And usually when he's making a point. Notably, he did say to his hearers, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. You will remember the occasion. A paralyzed man had been brought with him to be cured. Because they couldn't bring him into the house where Jesus was teaching, it was too crowded, he was let down through the roof. And when Jesus looked at him, he could see that this poor man was in a state of sin which was worrying him, as well as being paralyzed. So he said to him first, and this would be more important, Be a good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven you. 
And his hearers began to mutter, how can he forgive sins? Only God forgives sins. So Jesus said, I will show you the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he told the paralyzed man to stand up, pick up his bed and walk out the room. And he did. And that silenced the people who had been criticizing him. He uses the son of man to Caiaphas at his trial. And on one occasion, when he's being criticized for healing a man on the Sabbath, he said, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that was a much more important claim than it might sound to us. The Sabbath was almost equivalent to Judaism. The rules of the Sabbath were strictly adhered to. They still are by good Jews. And when he said he was Lord of the Sabbath, he was putting himself equal with Judaism itself. The Jews were so particular about keeping the Sabbath rules that the Roman army couldn't conscript Jews. It threw the whole army out because none of them march or do anything on the Sabbath so they were let off conscription because of it as I say the Jews are very strict about this I can remember going to the Wailing Wall on a feast day which wasn't actually a Sabbath but it was like a Sabbath and our guide warned us that we mustn't take any photographs pressing the shutter involved work and if the Israeli soldiers had seen us taking a photograph they would have taken the camera and removed the film. So, of course, we didn't take any photographs. So, Lord of the Sabbath, Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, was a tremendous claim. But Jesus made it. And, of course, all these claims and this authority he demanded for himself were substantiated firmly by his miracles and eventually by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus worked 33 miracles between Cana and Calvary. Some of them over nature, but most of them over people, healing people, <clears throat> bringing people back from the dead, casting out devils. And that was what made the people think. So that's his authority for his teaching. And what did he teach? Well, obviously, I can't cover everything here. But you will find it in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it's got such a good index. If you just want to look up one thing or two things, it's very easy to do. It's clearly put. It's not difficult to understand. And it's accompanied by beautiful passages from the writings of the saints which make it very graphic and real. But I am going to talk about just one or two aspects of his teaching that perhaps are not as fashionable as they should be because we can't pick and choose with Jesus' teaching. For instance, he taught quite clearly that there are angels. All his little ones, that's the poor, the uneducated, the children, everyone, all his little ones has their own angel protecting them 
He also taught there were bad angels and the devil, not a vague power, a being with intelligence and will. He taught the existence of hell, which whether we like it or not, Jesus believed in and warned us about. For instance, in the ninth chapter of St. Mark, there's the famous passage where he says, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, it would be better to do without it than be cast into the hell of fire where the worm dies not and the fire is not extinguished. He repeats this warning several times in parables and also directly. And when he was speaking of the final judgment, he says of the people who rejected him, they will be told, depart from me, he cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus' teaching on marriage is very clear. And this is an instance of changing older teaching for his teaching. Because he said, Moses did allow divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But I say unto you, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's in the 10th chapter of St. Mark, but the other evangelists mention it too. So the church who cannot change Christ's teaching, cannot ever allow divorce or pretend that divorced and so-called remarried couples are living in a state of grace. And of course, he taught about God by revealing himself, who is God, and by telling us all the truth the church now teaches us about God. Statements such as God is a spirit, To him all things are possible. He's perfect. As he said to us, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That God is very caring. He even cares for little sparrows, but more for us. That he is merciful and forgiving, as long as we forgive others. That he's always working, and that he's our loving Father. The word Jesus used, Abba, corresponds to something as informal as Daddy, more than Father. So that's how close we are to God. Now the problem with learning to know what Jesus taught, how he taught, is that we tend to know little bits which can give us a misleading picture. For instance, at a party I went to recently, I met a girl who was pretty hostile to the church and she argued that the church was wrong because Jesus only talked about love and the Pope kept on and on about abortion. She couldn't or wouldn't see that the Pope, when he was warning people not to abort babies, was speaking out of love for the baby and the baby's mother. To her, love meant letting people do what they like. 
And this is part of the reason we have to be careful about talking about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's an incomplete description of Jesus, and so it's misleading. It can imply that he's too kind to want us to suffer the inconvenience of keeping the Ten Commandments, and that's not true. And of course it's not a description that the high priest would recognize. All the money changers in the temple who were turned out with a whip, or Pontius Pilate, or the Pharisees and scribes, who would remember being called serpents and a brood of vipers, among other things, and warned how are you going to escape hell. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love them. One can be angry with those one loves while grieving at the failure in them which roused our anger. Jesus could be fierce even to his own followers. When St. Peter tempted him not to go to Jerusalem where he was going to suffer and die, he said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, which is a very stern rebuke. And St. James and St. John were similarly rebuked when they wanted to rain down fire on Samaritan cities and were told by Jesus, I have come to save, not to destroy. When he tells us the parable of the talents, he makes the servant who hid his talent and was scolded by the master say to the master, I know you are a hard man looking to reap where you haven't sown, looking to gather where you haven't scattered. And the master agrees with him and says, that is why you should have got it right because I am a hard man now this is because out of his great love for us Jesus wants us to be perfect he's never going to say oh I don't care what you do he does care because he loves us and of course he's really attacking not people but their faults for their good our faults for our good and I think it's important to remember that the faults he was most concerned about were an inordinate love of money and hypocrisy and having said all that of course Christ is love not sentimentality perhaps but love and he does talk a lot about love though he never defines it. Instead, he always shows it in action. Not just a feeling, but doing something. For instance, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You won't just say, Lord, Lord. You'll actually do what I want you to do, even if it's difficult. He says that more than once, but notably in John 14. When he talks about love of neighbour, it's not about nice feelings for your neighbour. It's about doing things. Bear one another's burdens. Put up with one another. Treat others as you would like to be treated. He gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan to show how we even should care for strangers. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked, show mercy, 
And he warned that those who so lack love of their neighbor they allow them to be led astray. It would be better for them if they had a millstone round their neck and be thrown into the sea. Love, love of God and love of neighbor and moral teaching go hand in hand. And here, of course, Jesus confirmed the Ten Commandments given to Moses in the Old Law more than once. And in Luke chapter 10, he condenses them into just two. The first one is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. And the second one, and thy neighbour as thyself. And that does encapsulate ten commandments because if you love God like that with your whole heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, then you will worship him. Then you will not use his name in vain. Then you will keep his Sabbath holy. And if you love your neighbour as much as you love yourself, well, you won't steal from him or lie to him. Love God enough and you have to love your neighbour because he or she is so precious to God. Now, as I say, that's not anything like all Jesus' teaching. It's just a glimpse, but you can add to it. The Gospels spend most of their time, a quarter of the whole time, on just one week in Jesus' life. The final week of his life on earth. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And that's because that week was so crucial. They describe his ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. How he was greeted by the cheering citizens of Jerusalem who even threw their cloaks on the ground for him to walk on. The same people returned against him on Good Friday. They describe how he spent every day in the temple teaching and that the high priest didn't dare to apprehend him because the people were there loving him listening to what he was saying every evening he slipped out of the city and stayed in Bethany with his friends Martha, Mary and Lazarus until Thursday Monday, Thursday then he had his last supper with the apostles and then he was captured in the garden of Gethsemane and suffered his passion and his death on the cross on Good Friday. We will talk about those episodes in more detail when we do the Mysteries of the Rosary, the five sorrowful mysteries which cover them. The Gospels complete the week with Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. And they go on to his visits as the risen Christ and his ascension into heaven. 40 days after his resurrection where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father always interceding for us having commissioned his church to continue his teaching and having promised to be with it always till the end of the world he said to the apostles who were sad when he left them of course 
that they should be pleased if they loved him, that he was going to heaven. And of course he didn't really leave them. He is still with his church. Now, if this is the message from God, as Catholics believe, we have to pay it really good attention. We have to learn it. We have to think about it and understand it. And then we have to put it into practice. We can't afford to ignore it or treat it as just some other man's teaching, which might be right, might be wrong. God has visited his people. He has told them these truths about himself, about how they should live. Then that's the most important thing we need to know and understand and spend our time on. His message needs no recasting, only deeper understanding. Because it hasn't failed. As G.K. Chesterton said, it hasn't been tried and found wanting. On the contrary, it's been found difficult and not tried, or not persisted with, except for the honourable exceptions, the saints, whose souls have been formed by it, and whose lives and writings demonstrate how wonderful Jesus' teaching is, when it's put into practice, and how well worth it is discovering it in the Gospels, and in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now we're going to start the mystery of the Rosary. We always finish these tapes with. And the mystery today is the first sorrowful mysteries because we've completed the joyful mysteries. The sorrowful mysteries all cover Jesus' suffering and eventually his death. And the first one is called the Agony in the Garden which took place on Monday Thursday evening after the Last Supper, when Jesus and his apostles left the upper room and walked a short walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, probably by the light of the moon, because it would have been a full Paschal moon at that time. And when they reached the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to the apostles, my soul is sorrowful, even unto death. Please pray with me. And then he took Peter, James and John with him, leaving the other apostles to pray. And just going a little away from them to pray alone, he prayed at a rock which is still venerated, and it's traditionally the rock at which he prayed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the church which has been built on the spot. And we're told that he prayed, Father, if it is your will, remove this chalice from me. However, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus' human will naturally shrank from so much pain, the physical pain of all the suffering he was to endure which he knew, of course, and understood was going to happen. <clears throat> the mental anguish, knowing that so many of his followers, even the people who were close to him, 
would still reject him, would let him suffer in vain. And the terrible weight and burden of all our sins, because to God, sin is the most repulsive, unpleasant, it's a mild word, but really repulsive, revolting thing we can imagine. But it was a burden he was going to take up on our behalf. And as he prayed, Father, if it is your will, remove this chalice, but not my will, yours be done. He was teaching us how to pray. When we have some difficulty, and we pray about it, that's the way we should pray. Thy will be done. When he had prayed for a while, being feeling so alone and so sad, he went back to the apostles, only to find that they had all fallen asleep. So he reproached them gently, saying, Couldn't you watch just one hour with me? They woke up to pray, and he went back to pray by the rock. And St. Luke, who was a doctor, tells us that he suffered so intensely that he sweated not just ordinary perspiration as we do sometimes when we are worried, but he sweated blood. And an angel came to console him. And traditionally, the angel told him, reminded him, about the people who were going to come later, who would love him and thank him for all the suffering, and who would show their love by acts of sacrifice and by watching and praying with him. And this strengthened him. But when he went back to the apostles, once more, they were asleep again. And this time he left them asleep and went back to pray for one last time until Judas and the crowd sent by the high priests to apprehend Jesus came into the garden. The apostles woke up then. But Jesus stood and waited for Judas to come up to him. And the prearranged signal that Judas had arranged with the soldiers was that he would kiss the one that was Jesus. So he did. He came up to him and he kissed him. And Jesus gave him a friendly welcome, which Judas resisted, sadly. And then he was taken away and the apostles fled. And that's the story we think of while we're saying the Our Father, ten Hail Marys and glory be at the first sorrowful mystery of the Rosary. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Thank you very much for giving me your attention and listening to this tape. The next tape, number eight, is about the church and the Bible.